How long have you been in print? Mm. Um, since... <laughs> yeah. My goodness. So, like, the school opened two years before that, and then the newspaper started, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, it feels... Such a legacy. Um, so we were wondering if... Um, we have questions prepared, but if you just wanted to jump in and introduce yourself first, that would be great. Absolutely. Um, so my name is Robert Emmons Jr. I go by the, the suffix junior. Uh, I started when my... Uh, when I jumped into politics, my dad is obviously senior, and we're a little different politically, so I was like, let me make sure I had <laughs> that junior in there. Um, I'm a gun violence prevention organizer, so I've organized nationally, bringing together young people um, to simply end everyday gun violence by addressing it as root causes. Um, I'm also a social innovator, so I've worked on a national level um, and even internationally, uh, focused on issues ranging from environmental justice to sustainable cities and development. And I've done that with organizations like One Goal, which is an organization that helps students uh, from disinvested in communities get into college and more importantly, persist through college. And since joining One Goal as the manager of program innovations, I've since helped them reform their model um, to include just making sure that students are able to achieve the highest aspirational goals. I also work with the Obama Foundation here in Hyde Park actually as a community leader. So I worked uh, nationally bringing together young people again to solve the issues that they felt were most pressing in their communities. So I took them through a six-month program called the Community Leadership Corps, uh, and again, designed to, to just solve the biggest problems that they see fit. I um, also did some work with uh, Unleash, which is an affiliate of the United Nations, focused on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. So we bring together a thousand young people from around the world every year. Uh, so I did so in Denmark and in, uh, in 2018, Singapore. Uh, I was supposed to go to China this year, but I decided I was going to run for public office, so didn't happen. Uh, and again, focused on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I worked in Track 4, which is education, um, and then more recently, Track 11, which is uh, sustainable cities and development around the world. Uh, and I'm running for U.S. Congress in the Illinois 1st Congressional District uh, to help make this the very last generation to be faced with everyday gun violence by addressing gun violence at its root causes. Now I come to the issue of gun violence as both someone who is passionate about uh, and compassionate about um, the pervasiveness of gun violence, but also someone who has a personal affiliation to gun violence. Uh, I went to high school on the south side of Chicago, 81st in May, did so with some of the most resilient individuals, and I mean this with all sincerity, that I ever met in my entire life. Um, and against all odds, two of us, we made it to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign together. Uh, we decided we were going to room uh, with one another our freshman year, and then our lives began to fork off a little bit. I became like extremely heavily involved in advocacy, um, and then one of my friends, uh, his life started to take a little bit of a downturn. Um, and within six months, he received an academic probation letter from the university, essentially telling him if he didn't get his act together, within six months, he'd be kicked out. Uh, despite his best efforts to bring up his performance, he was ultimately told that he wasn't going to be a good fit, uh, and he was kicked out. And again, being the resilient person that he was, he decided he's going to enroll in our sister college, Parkland, which is down in Urbana-Champaign. And that's where he experienced even more barriers and obstacles. He found that he couldn't feed himself. He found that he couldn't pay for books. Um, FAFSA didn't cover as many things as they once did because his grades weren't so hot. Um, so he did what some of our young people do around the country, especially young people from disinvested and under-resourced communities. He turned to illegal activity and an effort to support himself and eventually caught up to him. And he, and for the first time in his life, he engaged with the criminal justice system, 
Um, uh, and he had to move back to Chicago. And when he moved back to Chicago, he fell even deeper into poverty. Um, so he did, again, what some of our young people do. He turned right back to the same thing that got him in trouble in the first place in an effort to support himself. Um, within a few years of, of that, he was killed in Chicago. And what I've said, uh, especially throughout this campaign, um, on the campaign trail, is that the thing that is the most upsetting is, statistically speaking, his death was predictable. Um, and it was predictable because he was living in a system um, that, in some cases, intentionally failed him at every turn. Our education system, the one that didn't provide him with an adequate amount of resources to be successful, it failed him. Uh, our criminal justice system, which focuses more on being punitive than rehabilitative, it failed him. Uh, and uh, uh, our economic system, again, that allowed him to fall deeper and deeper into poverty, it failed him. And the reason why I'm running for U.S. Congress in the Illinois 1st Congressional District is because, as statistically speaking, his death was predictable. It was also 100% preventable. And it's preventable when we make sure that every single person, every single worker in this country has a living wage. It's preventable when we allow and make sure that every young person or young in spirit uh, that desires an education has access to it. It's preventable when we make sure that every single person in this country has guaranteed health care, not just access, but guaranteed health care, and with that, an expansion of mental health care. I um, mean, it's preventable with the Green New Deal because there's portions of the Green New Deal that would ensure that every single person has a guaranteed job and a clean job at that. Um, and it also touches on environmental racism, especially in cities like Chicago, which is extremely prevalent. Uh, so that's why I'm running for U.S. Congress, because it's time to get the federal government to understand that if we're truly going to end everyday gun violence, we got to address it as root causes. We have to tackle poverty. We have to, talk, we have to tackle health care. We have to tackle the environment. Uh, all these things are interconnected. Now, Bobby Rush, um, someone in whom I deeply, deeply respect, uh, is someone who has all but sold, well, I'll just say it, he sold our community out, and he's been selling our community out for quite a long time now. He voted for the disastrous 1994 crime bill, and then he apologized for it, and then 25 years later, he supported a mayoral candidate who in broad daylight said that we should spend $50 million on drone surveillance on the south and west sides of Chicago in an effort to reduce crime. That's the same thing that the 1994 crime bill sought to do, which was to further exasperate the vicious cycle of poverty and violence in our communities by over surveillance and militarizing and criminalizing our communities. Bobby Rush has also taken $540,000 from the fossil fuel industry over his, uh, over his career. And this is someone who sits on the Committee on Energy and Commerce. So when the Green New Deal, the resolution, came to his committee, it's, it should come to no surprise to any of you, which was quoted in the, in the Intercept, that he called it a smashing grab, that he's glad isn't getting any of his jurisdiction. And this is all the while a community like the first, more major portions of the 1st Congressional District will drastically benefit from the Green New Deal. Uh, and we in the 1st Congressional District of Illinois have some of the highest levels of asthma, and Illinois as a state has some of the most toxic zones in all of the country. Uh, we need a climate champion, and that's why I'm thankful that we received the endorsement from both Sunrise Chicago and Sunrise National. We were one of only four uh, congressional candidates that received the endorsement from Sunrise National. Um, and it's because of our commitment to making sure that we not just get a Green New Deal, which was a resolution pointing us in the right direction, but we actually have tangibles um, as well to push our community, and our, in that case, our world, forward in a, in a positive, green way. Uh, so Bobby Rush, 
that's just a little snippet of some of the main differences ideologically in, in reference to policy that Bobby Rush and I have. And I'm sure you have plenty of questions that we can dive into. Um, but it's a truly an honor just to sit here with you all. I'm looking forward to learning from you and, uh, and hopefully getting your endorsement. Shut up, so that's step one. <laughs> uh, I guess we could start with a couple questions about the first district. Mm -hmm. um, it's obviously a pretty big seat, and it's not a very homogenous seat. You're going to be representing people from Bronzeville to there's a lot of wealthy suburbs like Tinley Park, there's some poor rock suburbs, there's some rural areas down in Will County. How do you approach the challenge of representing a seat that has such a wide range of constituents? That's a fantastic question. So the first congressional district of Illinois is one of the most historic districts um, in the country, uh, and for that matter, the, the entire world. It's the very first plurality black district. Um, many of our, uh, when I say our, I mean, uh, <laughs> many of our, 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 our grandparents uh, migrated from Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas to the south side of Chicago, and it, at one point we were 70% black. So it's truly an honor to be running in a seat like this, a seat that um, has been represented by the likes of Mayor Harold Washington uh, before he ran for, for Chicago mayor, uh, even Bobby Rush, uh, someone who, again, I, which I deeply respect. Um, Barack got his butt kicked <laughs> 20 years ago by the same person I'm running against. Uh, so it's truly an honor to be able to, to run in a seat like this. Um, and like you said, it's an extremely diverse district. Um, it's becoming increasingly diverse um, as gerrymandering becomes, uh, we don't even gotta get into that. <laughs> as, you, as you know, it's, it's becoming more increasingly diverse. It stretches from Bronzeville all the way down to Manhattan, which is right next to Joliet. Um, so one thing that, one way we've approached this campaign um, is to not just be truth tellers. And this is what I've learned uh, from, from many of my mentors. Much more, it's important to be both a truth teller and a bridge builder. So our campaign is about ending everyday gun violence, which is a controversial issue. Um, the moment I mention gun violence in a city like Mokina, Illinois, the first thing that they hear is that I'm taking away their guns. But what we've been I'm so adamant about is explaining how we've approached gun violence um, and trying to build that bridge by starting off with a place of saying, we both want to protect our, our households, our communities. So let's start from that place. And now let's move on. All right, you support a sec your Second Amendment rights to bear arms. I do too. But we also have a responsibility to arm ourselves with forward thinking, compassion, and just rational thinking. Um, so after we break it down from there, and then we continue to go say, okay, well, do we truly need AR-15s? Do we truly need assault weapons? When the Constitution was originally founded, a trained soldier could only shoot three times in 60 seconds. And how many people you can kill in 60 seconds with an assault weapon? And we've seen it over and over and over again, from Walmarts to synagogues to schools, where third graders are in. So we have an issue in our country that we absolutely have to solve. And when a gunman, and I'll say use the word gunman because it's, it's mostly men, mostly white men in terms of mass shootings, when a gunman walks into the school, they're not asking our, our kids if they're a Democrat or Republican. So we have to come together as a country 100,000 Americans every single year are either killed or wounded by a gun. In the next 10 years, that's a million Americans that will have been directly impacted by a person that shoots a gun. And that, not even to mention the dozens of millions of families that will have forever been changed, lives been changed. 
So that's how we've been talking about these issues. It's, it's both from a place of, being, of telling that truth and also building that bridge because it's not enough just to run a good campaign. We actually got to get things done. Uh, so that's what we've been about. And through that, we've been able to connect from Bronzeville all the way down to Manhattan. We received endorsements from the Will County Progressives. Uh, we received endorsements from the Southwest Suburban Activists, and which makes up many of the Southwest suburbs. We've gotten um, support from individuals of 123GO, which is an organization. We didn't receive that endorsement, but support from individuals from these uh, organizations. And that's an organization that represents the first, second, and third district of Illinois. And again, we haven't changed our messaging whatsoever uh, as we go around the district. Um, what we're doing is, again, being both the truth teller and that bridge builder and doing so in a place in which we're saying, let's bring our co community together to solve these big issues. We've had enough of the division. Bobby Rush is someone who thrives off of division. During the mayoral election, when he got a second shot and endorsed Tony Preckwinkle, he said in that endorsement that the blood of unarmed black kids shot by cops are on the hands of organizers for Lori Lightfoot. That's not someone who's going to bring our community together. Um, and we need different. Um, and our campaign has been committed to that, and we've set the vision for different and much better. Um, I was wondering if we could ask why you decided, or when you decided to run, um, why now? Rush is a notoriously difficult candidate to beat. Um, so yeah, why did you make the choice to run in this race? Yeah. Um, when I first started, uh, even with the, the mindset to run for U.S. Congress, it was back in May of 2018. I was on a flight from Singapore back to Chicago, so I had plenty of time to think. Um, and I had just gotten back from uh, the one of the, four, um, the innovation lab that I was a part of, uh, in which we brought together a thousand young people from around the world, um, again, all dedicated towards solving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I remember thinking how brilliant that was, um, how unique it was to bring people from 130 different countries together. They never met each other to solve some big problems. And I remember thinking about some of the ideas that came out of it, all the way down from uh, creating a, a train system that was uh, that would promote um, more uh, more comprehensive thinking from the riders to make sure that they get up when a, a person with a disability comes in to the train car, all the way down to uh, worms that kill plastic, that eat plastic in the ocean. It was just, it's just amazing. And I, as I was looking through my phone and the pictures, I like started to cry a little bit because I remember thinking how just like incredible that that truly was. And then I thought like, what would that look like to do that in a district in my community? Uh, so that was the first, uh, first really engagement with wanting to run for U.S. Congress. I knew I was always going to run for a public office. I'm not one of those politicians that say I never was going to run for public office. And meanwhile, they're poli sci interned at Dick Durbin's office. Like, come on, you're going to run eventually. I knew I was going to run eventually, but I did not think it was going to be at 27 years old. Uh, so after that original ideation, um, then I started to do a landscape analysis, like looking over all, all of the things. Um, and I realized that many of the issues that we're facing in this country uh, from criminal justice uh, to gun violence to not our, our young people and our young in spirit not having access to upward mobility. Um, all these issues disproportionately impact black men under the age of 35 years old. Yet when we look at the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate, we don't have a single black man under the age of 35. Um, and it's not about identity politics. It's simply about making sure that we have a voice 
represented in Congress, a voice that's going to say this 1994 crime bill, maybe not a good idea. Supporting Mike Bloomberg, I don't know who you guys are supporting for president, but supporting Mike Bloomberg might not be a good idea. Um, but yes, thank you for, for supporting causes in environmental justice, and thank you for supporting gun violence prevention and more than anyone else on the presidential stage. But at the same time, during 2003 to 2013, 685 young black and brown men were stopped and frisked in your city. That's an issue. Um, and Bobby Rush threw his, uh, once again, threw his, threw his hat, uh, his, na his name in support of Michael Bloomberg. We can do a, a lot better than, than, than Bobby Rush. And understanding that uh, fully pushed me into to wanting to run for Congress. Um, and then it's also looking at the environment and realizing that as a country, we have to move towards carbon neutral by 2030. But Bobby Rush seems to think that we have until 2050. And I uh, told him at the last forum that we were at, in 2050, he'd be 102 years old, and I'm sure if he had it his way, still running for U.S. Congress. <laughs> but we don't have time for 2050 to be our goal. We have it until 2030. And this isn't Robert Emmons telling you this. This is our scientific organizations, not just in this country, but all over the world, saying that the United States, we have to lead in it. So in order to get the entire world to carbon neutral by 2050, the United States has to get there by 2030. Uh, so it's things like that, uh, realizing that there's a fierce urgency of now, it's what Dr. King would say, uh, that we have to capture. Uh, we can't wait anymore. Uh, we're not just losing support, but we're losing lives uh, in this country because of bad policies and bad politicians that much rather um, save face with corporations and the fossil fuel industry and the pharmaceutical industry rather than looking their community in the face and saying, I'm representing you in the right way. Um. From an education standpoint, your platform mentions restructuring public school funding, um, specifically to take away um, funding from property taxes and then provide school funding from other sources. So what would your ideal model look like and um, what would other alternatives be under your model? Um, the way we've approached m much of the funding, and especially as it pertains to areas that are under-resourced and disinvested in, we attempted, and I think we did okay, um, but we can go a little further, in infusing equity into all of our policies. So as it pertains to the property tax system, in which Illinois has one of the worst property tax systems in the entire country, um, some of our housing taxes go towards public education, which is a recipe for disaster. If you live in an under-resourced, disinvested in community, way more than likely your school is going to be under-resourced and disinvested in. Um, so I would would want a, a system in which we infuse equity into our the way we fund our schools to ensure that the schools with the most need um, have the most needs met. Um, and I think we have an obligation as a country to fight for that. I, I myself, uh, I partially grew up in Maysland in New Jersey um, from K through, uh, I guess that was ninth grade, school was well-funded, came to Chicago. Um, South Side of Chicago, 90% of our student population was under the poverty line at or under the poverty line. We didn't have any books. Um, I, we had teachers doing illegal things just to educate us. They were photocopying books just so we can learn. Uh, that's an injustice, and in the wealthiest country in the world, that shouldn't be. There shouldn't be a single place in this, in this uh, single school in this country that that has to operate in that way. So I would want to infuse um, equity into our policies and working with the Department of Education. Um, and local municipalities to ensure that that's the case. And if they're not, then we may withhold some funds from the municipalities who don't want to 
support uh, equity in our school systems. Um, what is your stance on universal pre-kindergarten? Absolutely, absolutely. So 100%, that's one of the things that we have on our policy page um, is universal pre-K. There's an immediate seven to one return on investment back to the economy. Um, you get mom and dad back to work sooner. Um, also, as the young person matriculates to adulthood, they're matriculating at the same eight, uh, same rates as some of their more affluent community uh, areas in which they already have universal pre-K. Um, it's called money. Um, so abs abs absolutely, absolutely. That's one of the hallmarks of, of, our, of our stances. And it also, as we've been able to point to what help improve gun violence within our communities, especially the ones that are disinvested and under-resourced. And then, um, so we also were endorsed by Our Revolution, uh, both the local chapter and the national chapter. Uh, and on our last call, I spoke to a woman named Colleen, who's also pushing me to evaluate um, uh, all-day kindergarten, which is a policy I, I haven't heard of um, prior to her telling me. So we're looking more and more to all the kindergarten is also a way in which we can increase the likelihood that our young people all matriculate through education at the rate that they should be. What would that entail? It would, it would entail additional resources to public schools to ensure that we have more teachers and uh, paraprofessionals that can stay school later. Um, and it, it would also help families that, that don't have the traditional nine to five um, that currently our models based off of. Um, it would ensure that our moms and dads could work their part-time jobs or their full-time jobs that start at 8 o'clock at night. Um, so that's what that would entail. We we'll just ensure that we have the resources necessary for, um, for our parents and our working-class families to have, have support. That's what the government was designed, what should be designed to do, is promote the general welfare. Um, so anything that does that, my answer is almost always going to be yes. Um, back to the public school funding for one second. Um, do you see your role more as um, increasing federal dollars into um, really inequitable schools, um, or is it just withholding funding, or do you see it more as working with state governments? Both. Both. I think okay. I think because of federalism, you actually have to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have, the federal government has to work with the state governments in order to to change the way we we even fund schools. Uh, so it, it would need to be a collabor uh, collaborative effort, um, and then. Put in terms of like the withholding portion of it, um, that's a little bit more complex, but it will be similar to um, how we desegregated our schools. Um, I know many of you know um, how that actually, after we passed the laws, nothing really changed. It wasn't until we started saying, you're not getting any money, the schools started desegregating. So that's what, if, if we don't start, <laughs> if states or, or local municipalities don't want to equitably fund their schools, um, then we would I would want to pursue, of course, I'll be a member of hundreds of other people, but I would, I would want to pursue um, a pathway to making sure that we use a little bit of a force to ensure equity is, is happening. Kind of going to a Chicago-specific issue, um, uh, what do you, have you thought about um, federal assistance on replacement for like lead service lines in the city, um, and yeah, how do you see your role? Absolutely, absolutely. So that's another thing our campaign has talked about throughout, um, throughout this this time frame is uh, removing lead out of our drinking water. Uh, it's also related to gun violence, and we've been able to converge the two because as, uh, as we know that from ages zero to three, as young people consume lead, uh, lead from our drinking water, from, from outdated, uh, overrun pipes, their minds um, 
don't develop at the same rate that their more affluent um, counterparts do. It's just science. Um, and it also leads to a deficiency in human behavior, especially as they matriculate into adulthood, i.e. the decision on whether or not to pull the trigger could have been decided by what someone consumed uh, from ages zero to three. So Bobby Rush um, supporting a mayoral candidate that says we should spend $50 million on drone surveillance um, and not acknowledging that we only need $50 million to get up the lead out of our drinking water in Chicago. Um, that's the type of decision making that uh, we're, we're currently lacking in the first congressional districts. But ab absolutely, uh, we need to get all of the lead out of our drinking water and um, ensure that we don't have the same problem uh, 30 years down the line that we're investing in technology um, that will ensure that we don't have to keep replacing lead in our drinking, uh, excuse me, lead pipes. And then we also have to do something about the microplastics in Lake Michigan, because uh, microplastics have a similar effect that lead has on the mind, and it also uh, uh, further pollutes the Lake Michigan, uh, and we all know what that will do, especially as global warming, i.e. Um, also climate change uh, becomes more and more pervasive we're gonna be relying on our Great Lakes system. Sort of a follow-up to that, um, in terms of microplastics, is the a, a way to address microplastics like Michigan local plastic bans? I know that sometimes there's some concerns about that with regards to equity and, and yeah. access to some of these plastics. Yeah. How would you approach that? That's a, tr that's a tricky one. I'm glad you asked that question. So I also, I also uh, worked as a, a organizer with Next Generation Climate, which was Tom Steyer's group. Uh, back at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, this is back in 2016, so I was advocating for a plastic bag tax, uh, which I know now is a bit regressive, um, but I'm still more in favor of it um, because it does ensure that we think twice about getting that plastic bag. Um, so I would be pro uh, moving toward a place in which we ban plastic similar to other countries around the world. Um, and in addition to that, styrofoams and other toxic uh, materials that uh, that uh, that pollute our water and our, our air and aren't biodegradable in any way. So our kids, their grandkids, their great-grandkids will still be dealing with the same exact things. And then it's also just investing in our young people um, with these brilliant ideas. I know you all saw um, the, the student from Norway who, uh, who uh, found a way to uh, mass produce the worms that can, uh, that can eat, eat plastic. So things like that, that we can, we as a, as a federal government can ensure that we're investing in so that way again our grandkids don't have the same problems that we currently have just because people just kind of kick the can down the street for decades and now we got to deal with it but sorry we'll figure it out beyond i guess the things you've already talked about i was wondering if you'd say more about congressional priorities um with income inequality so pretty broad question yeah, but yeah. so we're actually releasing um, that's a really good question we're releasing a plan in the next, uh, we were hoping to get it out by February 1st, um, but it's looking like it could be all the way up to like February 15th, uh, called the Black Agenda. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's the Black Agenda, um, and it's mostly designed at um, addressing income inequality in our country. Um, and we're, we're breaking it down by both racially and uh, also based off of sex. Um, and we know the numbers in terms of the, how much women make um, on the dollar. We know the numbers in terms of how much black people make on the dollar and how much black women make on the dollar, how much Latino, Latino women make on the dollar. Um, we have to address that. 
So one of our plans is, in the Black Agenda includes reparations for American descendants of slaves um, and also indigenous people. Um, just acknowledging that we are operate, operating as a society on stolen land. Um, and we, when we look at the two groups that are uh, most harmed uh, by oppression and racism, the two groups really are Native Americans, which usually goes on overlooked, and American descendants of slaves, black people. Uh, so reparations, and then our reparations plan, not to toot our own horn, uh, but I think it goes one step further uh, than what a lot of the national plans include. Uh, it includes debt relief um, and for health care, education, um, and also just faulty, just terrible interest rates. Um, so that way, again, um, as we move to a place in which we're, we spend the $22 trillion necessary over 30, 30 years to begin to heal the impacts of, of slavery, um, we're also doing so in a sustainable way. Uh, again, so 30 years from now, I, we can look at the, the income gap uh, and, and feel really proud of what we've accomplished uh, and, and how sustainable our plans were. And also, uh, there's plenty of things we can do for ensuring that the, the wealth gap between women and men um, becomes completely obsolete, um, and that's doing what countries, some countries um, around the world have, have done, is make it illegal <laughs> to, pay, uh, to pay women any, any less than men for doing the same exact job. Great. So we have a few questions about housing. Uh, the first is about what you can do federally to address issues of housing displacement. The Maroon covers uh, events that happen in the neighborhood, and yeah. we've already seen people uh, who live along Stony, seeing their rent hiked in anticipation of the coming presidential center. So what do you think local and state governments should do in response to that? And what should be the role of the federal government? Yeah. Um, so we, saw, we signed the uh, federal housing guarantee um, pledge, uh, which states that no one in this country should be homeless, especially um, if, if there wasn't especially in this, our, our veteran communities, in which a significant population of the 500,000 Americans that are homeless are um, a good percentage of them are, are veterans, uh, so that's that's an issue. So sign the housing guarantee. Um, Ninety billion dollars we can end homelessness, um, and the, it's just a small drop in federal budget. I think we can one hundred percent accomplish that. Um, and as it pertains to displacement, especially in communities like Hyde Park, Woodlawn, um, uh, uh, parts of Jackson Park, uh, the thing that makes me uh, the most disheartened about it is when some communities get new development, it's a joyous thing, um, which people celebrate, but in communities across the first congressional district, it's a scary thing. And it's a scary thing because the people in that community understand that that development usually isn't good. Uh, and that's what we have going on right now. Um, so I'm in support of a CBA. Um, I'm in support of a federal rent control um, and I'm in support of making sure, uh, again, that as development comes to communities, and I, I think the federal government has a role in, in working with local municipalities to ensure um, that there's, there is a affordable housing in that area and a guaranteed affordable housing in that area. And then just going back to the reparations plan, as we work towards credit revitalization uh, for groups of people that have been left out and hurt, uh, by predatory lending and bad interest rates and you name it. Uh, we're moving to a place in which people who have traditionally had to rent uh, can now begin to own homes. 
um, because we're doing what's right and we're beginning to heal some of those wounds of our past. Um, so that way, when the Obama Center comes, uh, we don't have to worry because we own the homes um, and the community um, and we can start celebrating in the same way that communities in more affluent areas can. I hope I answered that question. Yeah, no, okay. that's great. Kind of relatedly, um, you've expressed support for federal rent control laws, um, so I was wondering if you could say more about that. Absolutely. Um, so uh, there's an organization, I'm going to blank in a little bit, it's called the Tenants' Right. The Tenants, uh, they were at the forum. Tenants. Uh, tenants' Right. Tenants, it, it, it breaks, it's like T-HUD is their, uh, is their acronym, I think. Um, and basically, if you go to their website, they have pillars um, for making sure that HUD is, is advancing and promoting policies um, that is, are rental friend, renter friendly, um, down to making sure that the landlord is reporting uh, when something is going wrong in the building, um, all the way down to if rent is gonna increase, making sure that they are fully aware years in advance so they can begin to prepare. Uh, so I would support all 10 items on tenants uh, Tenants. It's, uh, tenants. Tenants. tenants National Alliance. There you go. Tenants. Say it one more time. Uh, tenants National Alliance of HUD. Yes. Tenants. And then that's part of part of the way I've processed all of these things. Is our campaign mantra is "We are the solution together," which is predicated on the idea that one person isn't going to be able to solve all these problems. It takes an entire community, um, and that's what it true power is vested. Uh, so what our campaign has been about is it's been about working with community organizations that are doing the work on the ground to help inform our policies and then also when I make it to Congress working with those same organizations to push policy on the ground um, because true change happens from the bottom up um, and usually when change happens from the top down is not so great <laughs> if history serves us correctly. <laughs> Weird question. Um, with um, under Trump, like HUD funding has decreased a lot. Um, so how do you anticipate? I guess yeah, promoting renter-friendly policies while also navigating this much smaller budget and like an unfriendly um, executive. Yeah. yeah, branch. I won't have to worry about that. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> right. Ideally not. But if 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 not, um, if if we get another. Trump uh, administration in 2021, um, I would result back to how I've always gotten things done um, as an organizer. So down in Urbana-Champagne, I worked um, with Rodney Davis, uh, if any of you are familiar with him, uh, down in the 13th Congressional District. I was a part of his Millennial Advisory Board, um, so I pushed him on plenty of things from education to gun violence prevention. Um, and I, it starts with that understanding that we have to be more than truth tellers. We have to be bridge builders. Uh, so I plan. I would work with my colleagues um, across the aisle to push for policies that don't just impact. Uh, again, when when it comes to housing rights, uh, you, whether you have a D or R next to your name, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's it's about you know, a capitalism out of control. Uh, and we have to get a handle on it. So it's working across the aisle to push my colleagues um, to understanding that we have an obligation uh, to take care of our community, um, again, in a sustainable way. Um, and also, um, the, the founders put together checks and balances for a reason. 
um, so it's the legislative branch again obligation and duty to push uh, the executive branch HUD to to advocate for our people um, and that's what we can have when we're working across the aisle and then also when we elect elected officials like AOC um, who understand that the only way to really do things is to do it with community organizations uh, so we can push. Uh, nothing's more scary uh, than having thousands of young voters at your door uh, telling you and demanding action. And we've seen that, um, especially over the last four years. Uh, going off the note about a hostile administration, uh, over the last few years in Chicago and nationwide, you've seen a little bit of a revival in the labor movement, both with the recent CTU strike, with the graduate workers strike here on campus, uh, and you've also seen a very hostile Republican-controlled National Labor Relations Board. Uh, so what can you do in Congress uh, to make sure that every American has the right to organize? That's a good question. Uh, so on our priority page, we, we listed uh, uh, our support for workers' rights to unionize um, in our country, and we know that reference to a good economy we need a, a thriving middle class and, the, and unions built the middle class uh, so we have to uh, continue to fight for union, unions uh, to be able to organize and to do so you just you you do things like right to work guaranteed you, you do things like um, uh, like making it illegal for a school especially like a charter school from preventing their employees from from unionizing um, and you do have to work again uh, with both states and uh, municipalities in order to ensure uh, that workers have the right to unionize. Uh, so that's that's where it breaks down a little bit, um, which the federal government does have a role in it, but we also have a responsibility uh, to work with folks on the ground and our elected officials down ballot to ensure that in that area um, folks have the right to unionize. So I, was out with the with the teachers now I'm doing a strike I was out with the nurses at U Chicago um, so yeah 100% love being on the front the front lines um, and I would hope that the the more and more we progress we are able to convince some of our colleagues that stay off the front lines to, to join like Bobby Rush um, didn't support the teachers strike um, which is unfortunate Pivoting pretty sharply, um, we wanted to ask. Um, I guess you brought the um, the Hyde Park Herald later looked into, and I guess corroborated. Um, but oh, you brought that. There. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess we have to ask the Sarah Gad so Sarah Gad campaign social media falsification. Um, so I was wondering if you wanted to expand on that. Yeah, sure. When I got into this campaign, um, of course I wanted to win the election, but I also wanted to tell the truth. The entirety of the campaign. I wanted to be honest and authentic, um, and I love my community. I think it's no secret. I've made barely any money for the last year and a half of being on this campaign trail. Um, so when I found out uh, that someone was in this race and being deceitful, um, I had an obligation. Uh, there's this quote that says, there are three things not long hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. So that was my mindset with reporting her uh, to the Hyde Park Herald. It, I tried to do it 
as non-politically as possible. Um, it came off political. <laughs> uh, but I think I have an, ob not think, I, I know I have an obligation to the truth and I have an obligation to my community. Um, and I trust my community to make the right decision. Um, again, Sarah Gadd has been deceitful and I'll be transparent and just upfront blunt about it. She has been deceitful with her social media engagement um, and those weren't accusations. We, we provided plenty of facts um, to back up everything. We had receipts, as the young people would say, and we pulled all of them. Um, so yeah, that's the way I feel. That's the way I feel about that, that campaign. If you can't tell the truth um, while you're running for Congress, um, then I, I don't trust you to be a good Congresswoman. Um, I think you will tell lies in Congress as well. And we can't, we can't afford that. Um, yeah, let me know if you want me to go more detailed, but that's the way I feel about the situation. We've since backed off just a little bit. Um, so for one, we didn't want to let Bobby rush off the hook because uh, focusing on one person lets Bobby kind of slide. Mm -hmm. um, and for two, we've been about talking about um, true change in our district um, and policies. We've been able to keep it about policies for a, a year and two months, and I wanted to try my best to keep it about that. Um, but uh yeah, the last thing I'm going to allow someone to do is to come into my community and lie. I guess we can call this pivot to another technology question. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Chicago has this sort of digital divide where about a lot of the neighborhoods on the south side, more than half of the residents don't have internet access or mm. internet subscription at home. Uh, so what do you think should be the role of federal broadband policy in trying to close this digital divide and make sure that everyone has this yeah, I think you just said it. <laughs> it's just making sure that every single person has guaranteed access to, to internet um, by closing the fiber optic divide. Um, in, in our country, again, the one of the wealthiest, if not actually the wealthiest country uh, to have ever existed, uh, we shouldn't have our, anyone that doesn't have access to the internet. At one point, um, it was somewhat of a privilege to have internet, but right now it is 100% a necessity. Um, everything down to security systems rely on the internet. Um, down from education, you, without the internet, we disproportionately uh, disadvantage communities that can't afford it um, or don't have access to it just because they're in a rural area. Uh, so we have to ensure that we're expanding broadband and connecting our country uh, so we can compete um, in an increasingly global country, uh, in increasingly global world. Uh, I think there's there's no other way around it if we want if we want to stop. Uh, going down the list on on every good stat in this country, uh, we we have to take care of our people. At one point in this country, that was our main priority, uh, but we've since lost that. Uh, and again, I, I I'm not 100% against capitalism, but I think it's largely due um, to corporations uh, just trying to figure out how to squeeze as much money out of the poorest people possible. So uh, you've brought up sort of a number of times environmental policy, and it seems like your background is sort of both sort of global mm -hmm. to local in mm -hmm. terms of working with the UN on sustainable issues. Um, and you've talked about the Green New Deal, which is sort of a large framework for a, a 21st century New Deal emphasizing job creation and labor policy um, and, and a lot of sort of the racial equity and, and economic equity things that have come up already. But I think we wanted to sort of zoom in and talk about more of the policy details of implementing a Green New Deal because the resolution itself has relatively little specifics about implementation. Um, so just to start with that, um, in terms of transportation investment to uh, combat social inequities and 
also on the green side of things to um, move towards more renewable energy policies. Um, would you support like federal funding for CTA? Um, and you talk about um, public transit fees for low-income people and students. Absolutely. Have you seen that on the website? Um, we've all sort of taken a look at the website, but okay. I haven't done it. Yeah, one hundred percent. That was one of the first things that we advocated for was universal uh, uh, access to transportation. It's again both economically the right thing to do with the return on investment when you put more transportation and access to transportation more businesses come to uh, communities uh, less road construction because less cars on the road it's transportation universal transportation is probably one of the best things that we can do right right now um, at, and at affordable affordable rate we would as the federal government take some of the responsibilities for uh, for the payment but you can also work with cities like Chicago with billion dollar budgets on transportation uh, to ensure that um, guaranteeing that young people and young in spirit and you name it access to transportation it seems like such a no-brainer to me uh, it's, it's both it's both the right thing to do and it's also the, the uh, economically the right thing to do um, and it also will move to a place in which every single new uh, train uh, bus uh, airplane is has clean energy I'm using clean energy um, you know, whether that be hybrid or you name it, uh, more um, biofuel. We can we can do so we can do so much, and the technology already exists. Right now, we need the will um, to sit, stand up to the fossil fuel industry and, and say that this is the way we want to move because we want a planet that we can breathe in. I think that's pretty pretty basic. Uh, so yeah, one hundred percent support of universal transportation, uh, both economically, environmentally, and just uh, it's the right thing. Do you see that as something Chicago should take the lead on, or big cities should take the lead on, or is there a federal role? I think there's a federal a role in it, but yes, I do think that some cities should take the lead on it, cities that have the resources to do, to do so. So we looked at, when we originally proposed the uh, universal transportation, we looked at a, a city like Frankfurt, uh, which is in the district, uh, not a whole lot of public transportation. Uh, in fact, what we heard from constituents in Frankfurt is, that when their kids graduate from college, oftentimes they don't come back to Frankfurt uh, because it costs 12 to $15 for them to travel from Frankfurt to the city where their new job is. Uh, so you have a decline in population in these rural communities simply because the kids can't afford to live in the same community that their parents once lived in. Uh, so we absolutely have to move to a place in which uh, we're working with local municipalities to ensure that they can afford a $550,000 bus. Uh, which is how much it costs for a hybrid bus. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's the way I think about it, is, is the federal government has a role in ensuring that the resources are allocated properly uh, and are working with local municipalities because no one knows their city better uh, than the mayor, the people in these 8,000 people cities. Like, the federal government in no way can tell them exactly how uh, how to administer something as expansive and complex as transportation. Uh, but it, the federal government has plenty of money to make sure that we, we uh, give them a push in the right direction. I guess you touched upon like the environmental benefits of making transportation more accessible, and this has to do a lot with the Green New Deal mm -hmm. and your support for it. Um, but how would the Green New Deal specifically play out in the first district? And how do you plan to work with um, community leaders to make the Green New Deal um, more specific to 
the first district? That's a great question. Um, the answer is, I actually already started. Um, Demon Drummer, um, I don't know if you guys know, have heard him. He's one of the authors of the Green New Deal. Um, he was on the board of Justice Democrats. Um, he's been leading the fight for both the Green New Deal, the resolution, and also Bernie's plan, uh, which is more tactical. Uh, so I've already started to work with people like them, uh, like him and the Sunrise Movement to ensure that as we're talking about the Green New Deal, we, we're talking about it from a levels in which, excuse me, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about it from a grassroots level um, because climate change isn't something that's going to happen. It's something that's happening and it's disproportionately impacting low-income communities. Uh, State Farms put out a, a report in which stated 87% of their claim, flood claims in Illinois came from people of color. Um, and that's because uh, of faulty sewer systems and just disinvest, decades of disinvestment. So the way we talk about the Green New Deal, especially in communities across the first congressional district, is letting them know that this is a complete overhaul of our system to ensure uh, that the people that have been disproportionately impacted by climate change first have access to these jobs first, um, to the, these green jobs that will revitalize local economies, and then secondly, um, the infrastructure portion of it, so we can work to get the lead out of our drinking water, we can work to get the, the uh, toxins out of our soil and air through the Green New Deal, um, and the money that will go, the federal resource that will go to revitalizing our economy, yeah, so that's that's the micro level of, of how we talk about the Green New Deal and what it will do for a community like ours, um, and then moving it to a little bit, a little bit out is talking about what we can do um, in the rural portions of the district um, with wind farms, um, solar farms to ensure that our cities are run from clean energy, um, and that our young people and again our young in spirit um, no longer have to breathe um, really crappy air, um, in which we've many, many organizations and bureaucracies have put out studies um, that are just devastating uh, when we look at who's already impacted by pollution. Uh, it's people who can't afford it. And then we saw in California um, with, the, with the wildfires, who can survive and whose lives will forever change. Rich people were, had private firefighters in, in California, while poor people's homes were burned. Um, so it's talking about this as a level of uh, how inequitable our system currently is and who it's gonna disproportionately impact. So we need to be aggressive in ensuring that we're taken care of. So continuing on our discussion about health, uh, I know you support Medicare for All. How do you make the case for Medicare for All? It's something that a lot of people seem skeptical of, that people might not initially buy into. So how do you make the case and build support for uh, passing this? Yeah, so I had a Medicare for All um, forum with congressional candidate Rachel Ventura down in New Lenox, um, in which we talked about our support of Medicare for All, and more specifically, a single payer, and more specifically, doing it as fast as possible. Um, so I'm not someone who's, who wants to slow walk this, because I understand uh, the constraint that, the, that not having health care what that has on our families. Uh, when we look at the numbers, and we say 40,000 Americans per year die because they don't can't afford to go to the doctor, and these are preventable causes. 90 million Americans are either uninsured or underinsured. 
and 650,000 residents per year go bankrupt. And their number one reason to why is almost always listed as inability to pay their health care bills. We're losing lives right now. Um, and what I always tell people, and especially the ones that disagree with me, is if the way I process the world and the way I process policies, I'm always going to weigh how many lives can we save. And if I don't do this, how many lives will be lost? Uh, so that's the way I made the decision for Medicare for All. I do not want to see another person in this country, in the wealthiest country in the world, uh, dying because they don't have access to health care. Um, and the argument that this can't be done, I saw on social media, and it blew my mind. It said, Medicare for All is so difficult that only 32 out of the 33 developed countries were able to pull it off. Uh, and I'm sure each and every one of you know which one, which one country doesn't, have, doesn't guarantee health care uh, to, to their citizens, and that's the United States of America, the wealthiest one on the list. Uh, so we have to move to a place in which we're moving to Medicare for all as soon as possible. We have trillions of dollars for war to take lives, and we can spend trillions of dollars to save lives. And that's the way I, that's the way I look at it. Um, and some of my opponents, well, one of my opponents, um, doesn't believe that Medicare for all is possible, uh, doesn't believe that single payers is good for physicians, um, and thinks that we need to expand on the Obama uh, ACA, which I'm thankful for, put 22 million Americans on health care, great. Uh, but we need to move faster, and we need to move more aggressively, and we do not have time. Two, two years represents 80,000 Americans dead. Not okay with me. Um, that's Gad, right? Or are you talking about Rush? I'm talking about Gad. Gad me okay. and Rush are on the same page. He supports oh, okay. uh, Representative J. Powell's bill. Okay. Not a champion of it, but he, he supports it. He's, he's pretty good on it. Could you talk more, I know you've talked about this a ton, but about how the Medicare for All could be better with mental health. Um, that's a big issue here in Chicago with we don't have very many health, mental health clinics. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was wondering if you wanted to talk more about that. 100%. Uh, so one of the initial reasons why I supported Medicare for All is because it will guarantee access to mental health care. Um, an issue, uh, especially in the communities like the South Side, many of the communities in the South Side of Chicago um, will benefit from. Um, as it relates to um, not just post-traumatic stress disorder in neighborhoods on the south side, but compounded post-traumatic stress disorder, meaning every single day they're experiencing new levels of trauma. Um, we have to address it, um, and that's one of the biggest ways we can end everyday gun violence. Uh, Two-thirds of all uh, deaths by gun are suicides, um, and there's no other country in the world that's even close to where we are as it relates to suicides. Um, so we, have, we absolutely have to move into a place in which we get a handle on this um, to ensure that this doesn't continue to be the, the, the thread in our fabric that defines who and what America is. Uh, so that's why I support Medicare for All. Um, and also working, again, working to ensure that we're also expanding clinics and, and communities across, across the country. Um, and again, back to the unions, the reason why it's so important to support our unions is because we saw what the CTU can do. Um, in terms of advocating for their students to ensure that we have social workers um, and, and just additional support in our schools uh, to address the, in, the issues of mental illness um, that's become more and more pervasive, um, especially in the United States of America, especially in poor communities. Um, I was wondering um, if you think, are, are there, what are the biggest like immigration-related priorities you think the next Congress could pursue, um, if you had to name? 
yeah. guess the single top thing. Yeah, it's repealing section 287Q, I believe is the uh, is the actual por uh, portion of the immigration bill that makes it illegal, um, which allows for the United States of America to jail kids um, and, and families. Uh, so it's 100% repealing that. Um, it's creating a pathway towards citizenship that doesn't include outrageous fines and long wait periods, um, which is again inequitable um, and doesn't represent the values or creed of the foundation of the United States of America. Um, I think we can do better in terms of reaching our highest aspirational goals. Um, and one thing we can do to ensure or prove that we are who we say we are is ensuring that our neighbors across the world have guaranteed access to the country. Um, we have plenty of land. I think it, I saw a stat where something like three, only like 3% of the United States of America is being like utilized in terms of housing. So it's not an issue of, of, of being able to house people. We have jobs that are laid dormant and vacant across the country. It's not a matter of jobs. We're, we're, we're fighting for a Green New Deal. Uh, they, these are skilled laborers. These are, these are people that with ambition and drive that want better for uh, their families and also for, our, for their country. Why, why not? Uh, why, turn, why turn them away at the door? Can you uh, say more about that? Last um, neighbors should have access to the country. So I guess which countries or like how do you see that unfolding? Oh, I'm talking about every country. I'm talking oh, about yeah. I'm talking, I'm okay. talking about I'm talking about every country. Anyone who wants to, again, back to, back to the issue, the the idea that there's this scarcity in the United States. That's what immigration right now. That's what's polarizing us is that there's scarcity in the United States. There's not scarcity in the United States. There's high demand uh, for for people, um, and we have plenty. We have plenty of resources for for everyone. We throw away hundreds of thousands of tons a year of, of food away per, per year in the United States, more than any other country. We have plenty. Um, it, it's our obligation, again, to to ensure that we are living up to our highest aspirational goals um, and, and not picking and choosing who should be allowed to the United States and who can get citizenship within a year and who takes 20 years to maybe get citizenship. Um, and then also, I've just been in support as the manager of program innovation. I worked with, uh, at one goal, I worked to ensure that, this is a Band-Aid on, on the problem, but I worked to ensure that um, our DACA recipients um, had money through emergency funding to, to pay for their renewals. Which um, organization was this with? Um, one Goal. One Goal. One goal. Um, so that's a Band-Aid, but um, part, of the, part of my belief in ensuring that our, every single person should be able to go to college, uh, should be able to work. Um, as a foundation, excuse me, to who to who I am and what I believe. And we are nearly at five, so we're going to close this out by asking the Iowa caucuses are tomorrow. Have you made up your mind who you're going to be supporting? We received the endorsement of the people for Bernie Sanders. We were the very first uh, candidate in the entire country to receive it. Um, we received the endorsement from again our revolution, both local chapters um, and national chapters. Um, Will County Progressives. Uh, Marianne Williamson just came out and supported us that after she supported Bernie Sanders. So I, I think it's no surprise who I'm supporting uh, for, for President of the United States. It's Bernie Sanders. Um, I think that he is someone that I believe um, when he says the things that he says uh, and that he will do the things he said he was going to do in the campaign trail even if it pisses some people off. And that's what happens in politics. Um, you're gonna piss some people off. Um, I need a candidate who is gonna be okay with pissing some people off and doing it anyway. 
Obama not compromising. As much as I love Barack Obama, he's uh, someone I worked for uh, for a year and a half. Um, I think there, in politics there comes this compromise. Um, but right now we have to be impatient. Um, and I think Bernie Sanders is the most impatient candidate that we have. And I like that. And he's also 78 years old, so I don't believe he'd be there for two terms. And I mean that. I'm not saying he's going to pass away, of course, but I, I think he is of the mindset that this is a one-term uh, thing, and we can position it in a place, in a, in a way in which we're ensuring that a person of color does come next, and hopefully a woman of color comes next after Bernie Sanders. So with all of those things combined, I think Bernie Sanders um, is, is my person. Um, and But I would support any anyone over Trump, of course. Um, but uh, Bernie's my, my person for now, and I think he's going to win the Iowa caucus tomorrow. And all hell's going to break loose after that. All hell's going to... You thought the Democratic Party was fractured. Did you say Carrie like an hour ago? No, I've been staying off of TV just because we're 45 days away from my primary. Someone tried him in a hotel lobby saying he was thinking about getting in. It doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. It's big. It's it's rooted. It's rooted. In, I'm a Democrat, but it's it's rooted in corporate. Like it's, you are, they are supporting their corporate donors. Um, and it, it's, it was abundantly clear when we looked at the fact that Mike Bloomberg can submit a check for three hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, and the rules magically change, and now we have three billionaires that are, could be our president. Uh, actually, you know what I mean? <laughs> in a country in which we, yeah, <laughs> we have a lot of work to do in the Democratic Party if we're gonna if we're gonna truly change this country, and we have a lot of work to do in the progressive movement also, um, and that's where we come in. Again, it's it's about all of us being oriented towards justice and community and understanding one another to to make this world a little better than what we inherited. So that's what this campaign is about. Uh, that's what this will be about. Even win or lose, the draw, the election, I'm gonna keep doing the same thing. And what I tell the constituents around the district, especially as they're making up their minds of who to vote for on March 17th, who do you think is gonna be around on March 18th after the election? Um, and I really want them to, to dig deep um, and think through um, who that person's gonna be. And, and the best way to figure that out is to look in terms of who's been around. Um, before politics and the election. Um, so, same thing with Bernie. Bernie's been saying the same thing 40 years. He was a lot crazier 40 years ago at the University of Chicago. I'm sure you saw all of, all of his activism in Woodlawn and Inglewood, uh, but I believe him. For what it's worth, our editorial board endorsed him. Uh, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I think, he's, I, think he's the, I think he's the right person. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. And sorry to keep you stuck in this basement. Uh, no problem. No problem. I text my wife and tell her I'm 